You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Rob Webster. I'm an Associate Professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Twamley. Catherine is an Associate Professor in Sociology at the Department of Social Sciences here at the IOE. Her research interests are focused on gender, love and intimacy, feminist practice and family. Today, we're going to talk to Catherine about a brand new research project she and her colleagues are working on, which is investigating family life and well-being during COVID-19. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Catherine, I have to ask you first of all about love and intimacy. What brought you to this topic? And perhaps you could tell us how you go about researching love and intimacy. So love and intimacy as a research focus really emerged uh, during my PhD. So after I finished my undergraduate in sociology and drama, I spent two years traveling. And when I was in India on these, I suppose you would call them gap years, I was working for an NGO that was doing a lot of work around sexual health. So that emerged as a kind of an area of interest to me. If you know anything about the area around research and and policy practice and sexual health, it's much broader than just actual sexual practice. And it includes kind of emotionality and relationships. And so that work was very interesting. And I went back and I did a master's in sexual and reproductive health research. But I suppose what really pushed me more into the area of love and intimacy was the friends I made when I was in India and the kinds of conversations I had with them. So I had a lot of conversations around their aspirations for future relationships and the kinds of marriage and romantic relationships they envisaged. And they were quite, I thought at the time, quite contradictory the way they were talking about them. So on the one hand, they had very, very idealized romantic ideas, and some of the dates that they went on were very kind of iconic in their romantic practices. So they would rent out limos, and it was an alcohol-free state, so they had bottles of Coca-Cola with champagne glasses waiting for their date, and it was very kind of normative in terms of the gender roles and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, they expected and they wanted an arranged marriage. So I thought, well, how can these, these two ideas be reconciled. And that was what my PhD came to be about. I actually did a comparative study looking at Indians who'd been born and brought up in India with those who'd been born and brought up in the UK. And I explored what were the kind of ideals they had around love, what did love mean to them, and and what did they expect in a relationship, and then tried to unpack, you know, the kind of transnational influences and the local cultural influences from the UK and from India. So that was how my interest in, in love and intimacy came about. And how does one do research around love? and intimacy that there's many different methods that one can use does tend to be in thinking about emotions and meanings and experiences tends to be more towards the qualitative end of methods. Narrative is very commonly used because people do narrate their love stories and and people are both influenced by love stories and tell a love story which kind of influence how they themselves view their relationship so they can retrospectively reimagine the past of their relationship, which helps them understand kind of the future of that relationship as well. So I did use narrative a lot, but I also went to speed dating events and I went to weddings. So I was looking around, I suppose, the symbolic uh, parts of, you know, how we represent significant moments in our relationships and why we chose those particular symbols. So, for example, when you think about weddings, who's invited to a wedding, who is given importance and that kind of 
partly tells you how much one thinks of a relationship and and, and marriage as sort of family or friend oriented or community oriented as opposed to just part of the of the couple. And in terms of speed dating, and I also went to a course actually that was in India for women it was on marital life and choosing your future marriage partner. So taking part in that class, being a participant observer in that class showed me, I mean, that that was very kind of literal, like what they were learning about what is an appropriate relationship and appropriate emotions that are attached to what they understand as, as an intimate relationship. And then in the other spectrum, <laughs> end of the spectrum, there's more practices and practicalities around intimate relationships. So how do we demonstrate and how do we recognize that somebody loves us and cares for us and how do we create moments of intimacy so is it through gift giving is it through conforming to particular ideas of a role within a relationship or gender roles and those kinds of things so there are very many different kinds of methods that you can use to understand love and intimacy and my research has mostly focused on couple love and relationships but I've also looked a little bit about parent and child so conceptions about what the kind of relationship that you, you can or should have with your child and how you can demonstrate that display it and practice it as a loving relationship um, but other research looks at friendship and sibling love for example. So love in the family context takes us quite nicely to your new project love in the time of coronavirus perhaps on families and well-being. We'll chat shortly about the study itself, the team, the aims and so on. But first, can you tell us why it's important that we study families and households during a pandemic? Yes, I think uh, there are several reasons. I mean, one very clear reason is that the social distancing measures are being imposed or taken up by families and households. So it's not an individual. I mean, you might have individuals who live on their own or are social isolating on their own. But on the whole, we look at families and households who are sort of managing the social distancing and other public health measures that have been put into place. And within these families, what we're trying to unpack is how do people make the kinds of decisions that they need to make in order to adhere to the kinds of measures that are put into place and also to overcome the kinds of challenges which come with a pandemic such as this one, such as how do we find food in order to prepare and make food? And also how do we take care of our children because we're focusing on families with children at the same time as potentially our paid work. So it's a very relational study that we're doing, but it's also examining inequalities. So inequalities within and across families. So within families, we're particularly looking at generation. So that would be children, adults, and grandparents, or also adults, but the senior generation member, and shifting power dynamics potentially with some people in the family being recognized as more vulnerable than others, and some no longer, you know, allowed to, in inverted commas, leave the house because they're considered to be more vulnerable. And what's that like? And how do they negotiate that within the family? There's also, we know, strong gender differences. So on the one hand, there's gender differences in terms of, and this has been, you know, well demonstrated in research around risk taking. So men do tend to be higher risk takers. So whether that also plays out with that pandemic and then how is that negotiated? And then on the other hand, women, we've already seen that emerging with some of the quantitative research. Women are taking on more of the care labor and more of the household labor as in cooking and cleaning than men are. Women are more likely to be furloughed, to request to be furloughed. So that has, you know, knock on effects for their careers um, and for the kind of power dynamics that can be going on within the household. 
So this is an ambitious study with significant global reach, isn't it? Tell us about the international dimension and the partners you're working with. Yeah, so we are 10 countries uh, in total. So you're right, it's very ambitious. And the 10 countries are Argentina, Chile, South Africa, Sweden, Taiwan, Pakistan, Singapore, Russia and USA and the UK. And as I sort of alluded to when I was talking about my PhD research, I'm very interested in comparative research and I'm very interested in thinking about both policy and cultural influences on everyday practice. So that was part of the reason for wanting to do international comparative research. And we also wanted to choose countries or work with country case studies where there have been different approaches to the pandemic and where there are different social welfare systems in place. And we more or less tried to get a country in every continent. So that was what we were going for there in terms of working with international partners. And it's been just you know, kind of crazy, but really exciting at the same time. And already I'm kind of learning just from talking about the preparation of the study, the various different aspects that are being dealt with in these different countries and how they view and how their governments have been trying to, you know, grapple with the pandemic. Going into the study, do you anticipate that families in different countries are experiencing things differently? For example, have all families experienced lockdown in the same way that we have in the UK? Yeah, well, it's different in different countries and different countries are in different stages. But you will have seen or or heard there that Sweden is part of our consortium. And Sweden hasn't really had the kind of lockdown measures, for example, that the UK or, you know, most other countries have had. So it's there the policy has been kind of relying on citizens to socially distance themselves rather than closing schools and closing restaurants and that kind of thing. So that is kind of a big outlier And then in the USA, for example, talking to the partners there, they were talking about, because part of our study is diaries, and we were talking about how we would access participants using the diaries. And we're using, um, in the UK here, we're using an app, which would send alerts to our participants. And they were really kind of anxious about that, because apparently parents over there are already you know, using a new app, which has been designed and led by the schools. And they receive several messages per day, kind of overseeing the parents, overseeing the work of the children. So I thought that was very top down, it seemed to me from over there. And and very, it seems to be the parents are really finding it very stressful there. We've seen a bit of that here, but I think it's more individualized in terms of the schools in the UK from what I have heard. So you mentioned an app there in terms of data collection and diaries as well. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Is data collection handled differently in each country or culture? We have a protocol of a kind of a minimum that each country is trying to achieve in terms of the study so that they can be comparative. So we're all looking at similar samples, similar sample sizes and the same research questions, although some of the partners will add on extra questions and add on extra methods. We weren't rigid that necessarily every partner used diaries because I think it was Chile in particular were very anxious about whether diaries would work in that context. Actually, it was Pakistan. Diaries would work in that context and they felt that their participants were likely to be overloaded. And importantly, I think they felt that they had the resources to do interviews and we did not feel in the UK, we're currently doing the research unfunded, that we would be able to do, you know, potentially 150 individual interviews at several different time points. We definitely couldn't guarantee to do that. So it was more around any differences are minimal. I think in the end, actually, everyone has decided to use diaries to a limited amount. 
And almost all of them are using this app that we're working with, which is called Indemo, um, who have actually donated um, the use of their app pro bono for the, for the use of this project in the International Consortium. Yeah, it's quite similar, the methods that are used across the different countries. So carrying out research in a pandemic, that's a new experience for most of us researchers. Can you tell us how this study links and builds on the work you and your team have done? Perhaps you can introduce us to your team as well. It includes this podcast's Humaira Iqbal, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, Humaira Iqbal is one of the co-eyes. And Humaira is a social psychologist. And she's done quite a lot of work in particular with young people. So it's great having her part of that because I really haven't worked with young people and neither has um, Charlotte, uh, the other co-eye on the project. And it's also, I think, really important to have a psychologist on board. So we are a multidisciplinary team. I'm a sociologist and Charlotte Faircloth is an anthropologist. So bringing in the more kind of cultural aspect. So I think we're very complementary. Charlotte's work has been a lot around parenting, in particular the area of parenting culture studies, which looks at how, I suppose, pressures on parents have changed and what that means for family life. And you can see that's obviously going to be a really strong theme in our research because thinking about what I was saying earlier on about the divisions of labor and the extra expectations around parents at the moment, that's something that's going to be a strong theme in the research, as well as we've briefly talked about well-being and mental health, which I think is going to be really important when we're thinking about the young people. Because as Samara's explained to me, young people can use various different methods for coping. And one of that can be speaking with peers, and but it can also be physical exercise and being outside. That's probably true of adults also. And so that's really limited, obviously, in the, in the particular circumstances that we're living in at the moment. One of the aims of the study is to inform policy and local responses to COVID-19 as it progresses, as well as planning for a potential future pandemic. Do you think there are likely to be implications or applications of your findings outside the context of another pandemic? Yes, I think it's a longitudinal study. Maybe I didn't mention that, but we're looking at we're working with the families for a full year. So we're starting the data collection now in May and we'll finish it in April 2021. And the reason we wanted to do that was to really see what are the long term implications of the changes that have happened now, whether there are or there aren't. So for example, I have heard reports and speaking to policymakers, but also to just individuals and reading media reports of people who had never had the opportunity to work from home before, who are now saying, well, I've always been denied it before, but now I know it is possible. So what is that going to mean for future work life? Will they be able to work from home? Or (laughs) having had that experience, will they no longer want to do it? And I think also homeschooling. I mean, I personally myself, I'm spending a lot more time with my children, which definitely has its challenges, but it also has its upsides. And I'm beginning to think, oh, can there be something more ambitious that I can be doing about combining my work and my childcare, for example, during the summer months when I don't have to be, you know, in university quite as much. And coincidentally, neither does my husband, who's also an academic. And of course, our children wouldn't be in school either and those kinds of things. But also there potentially are issues around divorce. We've heard a lot about, you know, discord and an increase in domestic violence. And these are uncomfortable topics that we 
we'll be addressing as well in our research in thinking about power imbalances and the imp- impacts on women's careers, potentially also men's careers, the interruption to children's education, the implications for inequalities across different kinds of families. We really want to make sure that the families that we recruit to our study are from various different socioeconomic and ethnic groups, because we are seeing already emerging that different socioeconomic groups and people from different ethnic groups are being affected health-wise from COVID-19 in different ways. And we really want to unpack that. Like, how is that happening? So we can see in the in the survey material and the statistical material that it is happening, but it, there isn't, I don't think, at this point, very good understanding of why and what are the nuances of that and will those kind of differences keep playing out in terms of health and well-being. Catherine, how did you choose the partner countries? It was a combination of factors, really. We were working at breakneck speed, to be honest, to try to start our data collection as soon as possible, given the social distancing measures that are in place, that which might be lifted or changed, and we really wanted to capture this moment in time. So in thinking about the partner countries that we want to work with, we want to work with mostly majority world countries, as in countries in poorer contexts and not just the usual Euro-American. So that was one factor we took into account. We wanted countries from each continent. We wanted countries which, you know, within the short term were judged to be doing a good job. That was, for example, Taiwan and those who were judged to be not doing a good job. So that was, for example, the USA and Sweden. And we also wanted different social welfare regimes. So, for example, again, Sweden, um, also Chile versus the USA and so on. And then we also wanted to, as much as possible, work with people who we already had some connection with so that we knew would be able to get off the ground and start working really quickly, who we could trust, who had the expertise and who would be able to, you know, start working almost immediately and would have the resources, both kind of scholarly, but also in terms of the kind of support mechanisms and the institution they were working in. So that was how we came up with this group. Although one of them, I have to say, Russia actually approached us when they heard about the study and said they had already started a study, which is quite similar, and could they join our consortium? But other than that, we went out, we sought partners in these various countries. Are there concerns over a second spike? Well, that was part of our objective around making this a a longitudinal study for one year. So there is now these lockdown social distancing measures and we're open to the possibility or it may well happen that there are another spike. The UK government has already come out and said they're very anxious about the winter and what that might bring for COVID-19. So yeah, we'll be looking into that and how our participants react to that. You can imagine that a second spike will be potentially psychologically more difficult to adjust to when people feel like they've gotten over or they should have gotten over the worst. It's a hugely exciting prospect. You're looking for participants for the study, aren't you, Catherine? Can you tell us how our listeners might get involved? Yes, we are. So we're recruiting families with children who are living with adults. So it can be children that live part-time or full-time. And it's families in the four parts of the UK, so Northern Ireland, Scotland, England and Wales. And um, we're looking for, you know, diverse families, extended families, single, mixed, key workers, non-key workers. And the ways that people can get involved at the moment, we're distributing a survey so that people can write a little bit about themselves 
you know, where they live, what kind of work they're doing, if there are indeed in paid work and so on and so forth, who lives in their house. And then once we have that survey, we will follow up with more information. So we have a website which has a kind of difficult name. I think it's Fact COVID Wix. I don't know what, but hopefully we can put the link below this podcast so people could sign up for it. Catherine, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Perhaps you can tell us about your findings on a future episode. That'd be great. I'd love to do that. You can follow Catherine on Twitter at KTwamley. That's K-T-W-A-M-L-E-Y. Follow the link in the episode notes to find out how you can contribute to the Fact COVID study. You can find out more about this and other podcasts from the IOE by searching IOE Podcast on your favourite podcasting app. Please do check out other episodes of Research for the Real World and our playlist of music chosen by our guests and the IOE Podcast team via our webpage. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Rob Webster. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 